surely, at this point, you've seen Imperial Yeast's amazing selection of high-quality brewing yeasts over at imperialyeast.com. But you might not be as familiar with Imperial Yeast's special order yeast bank. In addition to their tried-and-true core strain selection, Imperial Yeast has a number of ale or lager strains, Britannomyces, Kvike, and other yeasts available for special order. If you're looking to match a yeast strain currently in production or just looking for something new to play with in the brew house, reach out to Imperial Yeast customer service to see what they may have in store. Special order strains are subject to a 10-liter order minimum and require a two- to three-week propagation time, but they might just be what you're looking for for your next brew. You can get more information about Imperial Yeast's special order strains by calling 503-477-5826 or emailing service at imperialyeast.com. Welcome to the Brew Lab. There's a lot that goes into assessing malt quality. There are several chemical and physical tests that maltsters and brewers run on their malt to make sure that it meets specifications for malting and brewing. One of the simplest and easiest is to visually look at your malt and make sure it's free from imperfections. Well, some brewers were looking at their malt and noticing a bluish hue in some of them. What gives? Why is the barley blue? Is it just sad? I'm your host, Cade Job, and today in the lab, I've got Drs. Chris Massman and Patrick Hayes from Oregon State University's Barley Breeding Program, and they're here to sing the malting barley blues, or rather, just to tell us about a study they performed looking at the alurone layer in barley, which sometimes contains a blue pigment. Yes, it turns out some brewers were noticing that some of their malts were coming in with a slightly blue hue, and worried about quality issues, they decided to reject lots of barley. And that's kind of a problem from both maltsters and brewers and of course barley breeders as well. So the OSU team decided to have a look and being sort of uniquely positioned with a huge number uh, of barley varieties that they grow as part of the breeding program and a lot of genetic information that they can look at and dive into. They identified several different barley strains that had blue alurone, white alurone, or a mix somewhere in the gradient between. And yes, those are the only two colors that I'm aware of, blue or white um, in this gradient. No other fun, uh, you know, pinks and purples and that sort of stuff. Uh, but they took a look at all of these different malts um, or all of these barley varieties that have a blue white a blue alurone a white alurone or some mix and they ran it through a host of malt quality parameters to see whether there were actual differences based on the color of the alurone layer in barley and all the question that we all want to know is is his blue alurone barley going to turn our beer blue well we'll get into it when we get into the results but first if you haven't yet clicked the button to become a patron please consider doing so in addition to the feel good vibes of helping to support the work we do here at Brewlosophy, you get a, a access to a bunch of awesome rewards depending on the different pledge level that you choose. You can get access to Brewlosophy contributor recipes that we've never before published, new discounts each month to yakimavalleyhops.com, and for $3 a month, access to a monthly live Q&A session with a special guest from the brewing industry. This month's guest is Brewlosophy contributor Steve Thanos. Steve's a teacher and a home brewer with a wealth of knowledge about beer, and he's just a lot of fun to hang out with. He'll be available in June to answer your brewing questions. So I hope you'll take advantage of this great reward by hanging out with Steve, asking him things about home brewing and beer and anything you want to know about Brewlosophy. I'm sure he'd be happy to answer as well. Uh, take advantage of this great award. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash brewlosophy for more information. 
Thank you to everyone that's left a rating or review of the show. We're just shy of 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts, so let's see if we can push it over 100. I love reading your reviews. Let's keep them coming. They're important for me and for other listeners like you to find the show, and also they help make sure that we're bringing you the content that you want to listen to. So thank you to those that have posted a rating or review, and if you haven't yet done so, please do so. Feedback is brought to you by the imaginative crew at Haas, who developed a revolutionary way to dry hop using Spectrum, a flowable 100% hop-derived product that's fully dispersible in cold side applications for great flavor, efficiency, and less beer loss. No solids means less loss and it's fully dispersible in cold beer, so there's no contact or residency time required like traditional dry hopping. Spectrum fully disperses immediately, so you don't need to wait 24 to 48 hours or worry about double dry hopping, and you don't have to have any special dry hopping equipment. It stores easily and is easy to use, saving you precious time and getting instant aroma in each batch. It's currently available in Citra, Eclipse, Galaxy, and mosaic so check it out by visiting johnihas.com that's john the letter i-h-a-a-s.com all right listener jeff wrote in he said good evening cade several episodes ago you discussed using koji malt koji for making malt you had the question about what else koji is used for well how about making jam this year our strawberries are out of control i came home from work last night and my wife had made jam she used rice koji with strawberries a little sugar and lemon juice at 65 celsius for about three or four hours to add a little extra sweetness and thicken the solution and she didn't add any extra rice just the koji which is already on rice and it's the perfect consistency and taste great. Keep up the awesome work with philosophy and your studies. Hey, Jeff, that's a pretty cool idea uh, to use koji to make jam. I've made jam several times with, uh, I especially like the wild plum jam we make with plums that grow outside of my dad's ranch. Um, and we usually add some pectin, pectin to get that jammy consistency that we're looking for. But hey, maybe using koji rice could achieve the same thing. Um, I want to know though, Jeff, how does it taste? Did you try it yet? Did it alter the flavor? Is there Are there interesting umami characteristics from the koji or does it just taste like jam? Um, I love all these alternative uses of ingredients uh so keep sending them in and i'm interested if you know more about how to use koji i'd love to hear from you all right i'll be back in a few minutes with doctors chris massman and pat hayes talking about the malting barley blues One of the biggest improvements to my brewing practices was the upgrade to stainless steel. And Delta Brewing Systems offer some of the lowest prices on high-quality stainless gear, like the Firm Tank, which holds 8 gallons or 30 liters of wort, comes with a domed lid to reduce the chances of a messy blow-off, and it can hold up to 4 PSI of pressure. Delta Brewing Systems also has their own line of brew kettles, as well as one of the lowest-priced all-in-one electric brew systems out there. And their prices are remarkably affordable. If you're in the market for legit stainless gear, that won't break the bank, you've got to check out deltabrewingsystems.com. Malted barley is one of the core ingredients of beer. To qualify as malt barley, barley must meet strict standards, including apparently the color of the barley. Yes, it turns out that some people prefer that their malted barley not be blue. And with me in the lab today to talk about barley color and why or why not people should care about blue barley are Dr. Chris Massman and Dr. Pat Hayes of Oregon State University. Chris, welcome to the Brew Lab for the first time. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, and Pat, welcome back to the lab. 
Hey, great to be here. Yeah, well, you, uh, listeners, you'll remember Pat from episode 36, where we talked about Barley Basics. Um, and Pat's been a principal investigator on a number of other episodes that we've discussed with Campbell Morrissey talking about the Romp of Otters and Harmony Bettenhausen talking about barley flavor and metabolomics. Um, and now with Chris. So, um, Blue Barley, really? This isn't an April Fool's joke, is it? Uh, no, not at all. It's uh, It's really interesting stuff that we found. Yeah, it's it certainly sounds like I mean, this is the first time I'd heard of uh, like barley being blue, I guess. I It's not not something that ever occurred to me. But as I learn and as listeners are going to learn today, it's actually fairly common, right? Uh, yes, uh, it's not just blue. There's also other colors, purple, grays. Um, but we focused on the blues for our purposes because uh, they seem to get a lot of flack in the malting industry. All right. Well, cool. Well, I'm excited to dive into this a little bit and understand, you know, what it means for barley to be blue, where that even comes from. Uh, but first, to introduce you both. So, again, uh, Pat is a professor here at Oregon State University. He's been breeding barley for well over 30 years and, of course, is head of the Barley World uh, program, responsible for a whole bunch of uh, or, or at least several uh, barley varieties that are out there now um, and, and popularly grown. Um, and again, he was back on episode 36 uh, talking about, you know, barley in general, what uh, different components there are. And I think a little bit of that's going to come into play today, but don't worry, we'll do a little bit of a refresher. Um, and then Chris, you're a postdoctoral scholar uh, with your PhD from the University of Wisconsin and Madison. So um, Chris, first though, I have to ask this, and this is, a, this is a kind of a weird question to ask, but are you Miles Teller or are you related to him? Because you look exactly like the guy that plays Goose's son on on the new Top Gun Maverick show. I was actually sitting in um, Campbell Morrissey's dissertation defense and looking over like that direction towards the window, and I was thinking, "Is Miles Teller here? Like, how does Campbell know Miles Teller?" <laughs> no, not as far as I know. Maybe a, a long lost relative, but <laughs> okay, well, uh, I can't enough. say for sure. <laughs> well, fair enough. Uh, but in any event, um, how did you get into studying barley? Uh, yeah, my first experiences with barley uh, were with the cereals breeding and quantitative genetics lab uh, at UW-Madison for my graduate project. My advisor, Dr. Gutierrez, uh, had an open position working on the Naked Barley project. Um, I liked the lab. I liked the project. So I joined on. Uh, and that has eventually led me here working with Pat. Yeah, who, uh, I again, also has a Naked Barley project going. We briefly touched on that back in episode 36, but Pat, you're also looking at Naked Barley too, right? Yeah, that's correct. Our colleague uh, Bridget Mites heads up the Naked Barley uh, project. And for those interested, I just saw NBAA uh, has an interesting conversation out with our Canadian colleagues who have some new Naked Malting Barley. Oh, very cool! Yeah, yeah. This this new na- uh, this uh, naked barley thing. We're gonna have to do an episode just on that um, at some point, and just get down into the details about uh, naked barley. So, I like to start the show talking about a little bit of like an abstract level uh, uh, of the 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 study. And so, I'll sort of provide that brief overview real quick. But then I'm gonna ask you, um, Chris and Pat, some detailed questions about what's going on here. So, one of the things that we uh, have to understand is that barley has an alurone layer and it can be blue amongst other um, colors. So one of the questions, and I have to pause here too, the title of the paper is The Malting Barley Blues. I mean, I absolutely love the titles, uh, Romp of Otters, Malting Barley Blues, uh, everything that you guys have come up with. So keep that up. Um, I don't know whose influence uh, the title was in this one. I got to credit Chris with that. 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> well, well, cool. Um, and so keep those titles going. But again, you're looking at what, you know, should Blue Barley have this bias that it has uh, in the industry? Um, and the big takeaway, um, this is my takeaway. It's don't worry, be happy. The blues are all right. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll go from there. All right. So, Chris, uh, I want to ask you this one then. So Blue Alurone barley. So tell me first about the problem, what you wanted to study, and then we'll get down into the details about what this all means. Uh, yeah. So in the literature and in industry, to an extent, there is an aversion to blue alurone in malting barleys. Um, there's this belief that they are not well suited for malting. Um, what we wanted to do was explore and investigate this perception uh, and determine if it had any merit or if it was more of a superstition. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, I, I, you know, one of the first questions that I sort of have is like why they would even worry about the color of the alurone layer. But first thing we have to know then is what is the alurone layer? What's its purpose uh, in the barley kernel? Yeah, of course. So the alurone covers the outermost layer of the endosperm. Uh, it's about three cell layers thick in barley and produces enzymes that are required for uh, endosperm modification during malting. Uh, so it's of vital importance uh, during the malting process. Well, yeah. Okay. So that makes sense then. The endosperm is kind of the part that brewers are most interested about, I guess, right? That's the part where all like the, the sugars are, uh, the starches are all bound together. It's kind of like the the storage area for the barley kernel. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And then so the the alurone, am I even saying that right? Alurone, alurone? Alurone is what I go with, and no one's corrected me yet. So <laughs> okay, all right, sounds good. Pat, do you have an opinion on pronunciation? Alurone, alurone. Well, some places they say alurone, but I think I'm just going to go with alurone. Alurone, that works for me. Sounds good. All right, so the alurone then covers that layer of the endosperm. Um, and as I've been doing this show, that's one thing that I, uh, this is something I've learned through doing the brew lab is that the whole malting process is is really a, a, a huge part of it is getting enzymes ready to go for brewers. And my understanding is that's kind of the key purpose of that alurone layer. That's where all the enzymes come from. Is that right, Pat? Well, yeah, I mean, to, to certainly uh, to trigger the whole process. That's what we're doing in malting is we're getting some uh, critical expression of genes uh, in that alurone layer that then sort of launch the whole process of malting, uh, which is controlled germination to create the ideal uh, food for yeast. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that alurone layer is actually responsible for quite a few things. Um, and, and, and I guess then, Chris, back to you, can we physically see the blue in a blue alurone barley kernel? Like if someone wanted to look at this and see if the bar barley that they have in their brewery um, is blue or not, could they do it? Um, generally, yes, we can. So the degree of blueness will vary between years or even between lines, but it, it is able to be visually assessed. Now, you may have to remove some of the hole uh, to do that. Pearl the barley is probably the easiest way. Um, to see if your uh, barley is blue, because um, the whole um, would cover that to a fairly large extent. But it is a visual assessment is a, is a big part of what we did. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. You did in your study actually look at these visually um, and, and sort of set them onto scales. But we'll get there um, in, in a second. Now, the other thing I have to ask then is, okay, so we know that barley has an alurone layer, and we know that the alurone layer can be white or blue. 
I'm assuming that an aluron layer functions the same purpose, whether it's white or blue, but that's what your research is, right? Your question is, well, you know, some people think it doesn't. Um, so to understand how it functions, we've got to understand what traits you look for uh, in malting quality. So I'll ask you this one of you, Pat, what are you looking for in a malt quality barley? Or I guess, how would someone assess whether they're the aluronic or the aluronic layer is doing its job or not? Well, malting quality is to some extent in the eye of the beholder. And so you will find some maltsters will put a little more emphasis on some trait than another. So let's just grab the American Malting Barley Association, uh, uh, AMBA, uh, list, and they have uh, their malting barley breeding guidelines. And so they've got 19 different traits. And so I won't go into each one of these 19 traits at this point. You can pick that up on an excellent website that AMBA's put together. Uh, But they kind of divide this into barley factors, malt factors, measures of malt modification, Congress report, and malt enzymes. So that's 19 possible uh, characters there. And then you've got uh, sort of three principal classes of barley, and those would be for adjunct brewing, for all malt brewing, and for grain distillers. So you put that whole matrix together, and you got like 57 different cells with which to be devil barley breed. <laughs> right, for sure. 57 different uh, possible traits that you've got to meet. I mean, that's it's no wonder that uh, barley breeding is such a difficult job, uh, you know, even though you're doing uh, doing the good work there, um, trying to breed new 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 versions of barley. Right. Well, thanks, Kate. We do our best. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we'll, we'll talk about I mean, we did talk about uh, on that last episode, the Thunder and Lightning. You shared the story of those two, uh, you know, barley varieties. Thunder, of course, on the approved list. Lightning not on the list, as we discussed uh, in, in that episode. Um, and that was a great conversation. But I don't want to derail away from um, Alurone color. So, OK, so you're looking then at all of these malt quality traits like you had just mentioned, right? Different barley factors and malt factors and then three different classes of adjunct all malt and grain distilling classes 57 total different features um you know that 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 are responsible for determining whether malt is or whether barley is malt quality barley um and and, all right so back to the aluron layer where does aluron color even come from in the plant is there some sort of like evolutionary difference between plants is there a benefit that a plant might have for being blue uh, yeah, so the blue coloration of the aluron in some barleys comes from an accumulation of anthocyanin. Um, it's genetically controlled uh, by the BLX1 through 5 loci. Um, BLX1, 3, and 4 are on chromosome 4H, um, while 2 and 5 are on 7H. Um, but some studies have found that anthocyanin accumulation is a response to ultraviolet light or heat stress conditions. Some anthocyanin can help protect the developing seed from stress resulting from these conditions. Okay, interesting. So so the blue color is actually coming from a, a, a compound. Yeah, like you know what's causing this blue color. It's anthocyanin. That's what's making it blue. Right. Okay. Um, and is the, you know, is is the, um, uh, oh, and, and so to answer my second question, you asked, like, is there a, some sort of genetic advantage maybe for blue or barley? And you said that some studies have found that this helps with heat stress or ultraviolet, ultraviolet light, you know, radiation that might be damaging parts of the of the 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 plant. Oh, this is interesting. It just sort of popped to my it's kind of like shading itself from the sun 
I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good analogy. Interesting. Okay. So, so then it seems like, um, blue, uh, you know, blue barleys might have sort of this at least built in, you know, either stress relief condition or, or, or something like that. Um, but then I, I have to ask this question too, and maybe, um, I'll ask you of this one, Pat is, or maybe Chris, uh, either one, whoever wants to jump in. Um, is there a reason to believe that, the aileron layer or aileron layer would function differently if it was white or blue. Does the accumulation of anthocyanin, you know, mess anything up or disrupt anything? Well, like Chris said at the outset, that's one of the questions that we were asking with this research. Could we identify any particular relationship between aileron color and the specific, uh, you know, composition of the malting quality traits and you know, it just seems to be kind of a, a it's a defect nitpicking thing would be my take on it. And uh, some maltsters uh, are concerned that the malt would look dingy if it were blue aileron. Certainly by the time it's getting in the beer, you do not have the blues. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, that that was a good question, right? I was going to ask, you know, is this blue color going to come through all the way to the beer um, and turn our beers blue? And and you, I guess you've just answered that. No, not going to happen. Well, Labatt's has, used to have a brain. <laughs> yeah, right. It had, nothing, it had nothing to do with the alleyway. <laughs> right. It has nothing to do with the barley. Um, you know, interestingly, too. Uh, I, well, I don't know if I want to say this yet, but I, I, well, I'm going to say it now because I've already I've already uh, let in. But it seems like there are a lot of very popular barley varieties that are out there and in popular use that are being used by 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 people that have blue aileron or uh, aileron. Or sorry, I'm just going to mess that word up all day today or say it twice. Um, that that have blue aileron and nobody really cares un- until somebody does, I guess, right? Well, you know, consider that at one time uh, in Canada, uh, in order to qualify as a malting barley, the six rows had to be blue. So that was a defining uh, criterion to separate malting barley from feed barley. Uh, But, uh, you know, sort of subsequently then it's become kind of this this thing that people could be concerned of. And, um, you know, I think where we're heading here is is, uh, let's ask the question, uh, is there... Uh, a problem with aileron color because there's some serious uh, commercial and economic consequences uh, that have uh, accrued because uh, of color. Uh, one was in Australia where they pulled an otherwise fine barley called Henley because their customers uh, in China were concerned about it being blue. Well, the customer's always right, right? So the variety had not had any issues until then. So that variety is pulled off the market and that really had to cost uh, any number of uh, stakeholders a considerable amount of time, aggravation and, and energy. Yeah, I can imagine, right? I mean, think about just the amount of uh, barley that was already planted and in the ground, um, you know, that that then couldn't um, go anywhere or well, it couldn't go to China, at least who knows where it went, um, you know, couldn't go to China for the, for for those purposes, you know, and actually it just sort of popped into my mind, too. Right. And, and is that, 
there's, you know, when when barley goes bad, whenever it gets soaked in water or when malted barley gets it gets water on it. Right. You get mold um, and things like that. And those molds are often bluish, you know, fungusy molds. So I could certainly see like, OK, you know, maybe there are some conditions where there's, uh, you know, poorly stored ba- barley uh, or poorly stored malt. Um, and that's kind of raised some specters uh, for brewers like, nope, if that barley is blue, it's got mold on it. We're not using it. But that's not what we're talking about at all here. We're not talking about poorly stored barley. We're just talking about the barley itself has a layer, that aleuron layer, that's blue. Um, and and uh, otherwise, it's it it um, it's been used functionally as barley. And of course, that's the question uh, uh, for this research paper is, is it as good as or equal to or is there any, even any difference at all uh, between barleys based on having a white or blue aleuron. Um, and now Pat did mention like some down, you know, I, I, I mentioned that there's not a color uh, impact downstream in the brewery. But Chris, I wanted to ask your opinion on this as well, too. Are there downstream impacts in the brewery from using blue aleuron barley? Um, right. Uh, and from what we've seen, any impacts of blue aleuron are minimal. Certainly no blue beers. Um and mainly this is because anthocyanin is water soluble. And for the most part, it comes out in the wash. Uh, determining the impacts on, on flavor would be really difficult, of course, with the number of factors and population sizes required. Um, but we didn't find anything that would point to, you know, blue aleurone barley being bad for any particular reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I could certainly see, right? In conversations with brewers, I've never had anyone say, hey, my beer is blue. Um, it's got to be the barley. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if your beer is blue, you've definitely got some problems, but maybe it's not not best to point at the barley in that pl- in that way. OK, and then um, a couple other things we need to touch on before we hit the break, too. Um, and you you guys did a genomic analysis of this. And now, Chris, you mentioned that your background is sort of in this uh, uh, in this type of research. And Pat, of course, I know you've been doing this for years and years. I wanted to get some baseline um, uh, definitions sort of out of the way so that we could talk about those when we get to the results. Um, And this is the first time I have ever learned or been approached by these words. So I'm going to be totally noobish on this. And hopefully uh, that's good and get some conversation going. But you use something that you called a genome wide association study. Um, So I wanted to ask, what is that and why did you use it in this study? Right. A, a GWAS or a genome-wide association study. Um, it's a statistical method to identify genomic markers or genomic regions that are significantly associated with a particular phenotype or trait. Um, they are particularly useful when the population in question comes from a genetically diverse background, which was our case. Um, the genetic background effects um, that can arise in this situation would otherwise um, be confounding factors in the study. Um, but we can easily control these in GWAS. Okay. So in our case, GWAS was the perfect tool for the job. We had 175 lines representing a dozen different genetic backgrounds. Um, So it just made sense. So I see. So let me break this down sort of into two pieces there. Um, so it says, so it's to look for uh, genomic markers with um, that are associated with a particular phenotype. And and so if I understand that correctly, what that means is you're looking for places on the genome um, where maybe, for example, blue alurone would be coded and it's next to something else, right, that might impact barley quality. Is that right? Right. Yes. 
Okay, cool. All right. Um, and then the second piece of this is the reason why you use this is because you had um, a bunch of different barley varieties from different genetic backgrounds. So if you're comparing apples and oranges, you need a tool to be able to compare apples and oranges, right? Right. Or at least several different varieties of, of, of apples that are going to have different genes, I guess, right? That's maybe the better example. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Okay, cool. And then the second thing is QTLs, quantitative trait loci. Uh, what are they and why are they important in GWAS? Right. So a QTL uh, is a genomic region that uh, affects a particular quantitative trait. Um, identification of a QTL is one of the key goals of a GWAS and was one of our key goals for this study. So regions consistently associated with a phenotype or trait uh, in a GWAS uh, are considered QTLs. I got it. So, okay, so this is that first piece of the GWAS that you were talking about. So you're trying to find the QTL, and the QTL is where these, uh, it's it's essentially the region where these traits are all sort of encoded in the same area. Correct. All right. Okay, cool. And so then I, I guess um, let me take it back up to a high level. If we can find traits or regions in the genome that all code for the same things, then we understand that I guess there might be some sort of relationship um, between those things. For example, if blue allurone, if blue allurone um, codes in the same layer that, you know, I don't know, um, amylase production encodes, then they might be some relationship between those two. Um, possibly, yes. Okay. All right. And that's, again, this is what you're trying to study, right? You're using genomes to try to, or genomic analysis to try to figure this out. Right. Right. Okay, cool. And then the last piece of the genomic analysis that you went through um, is you did a biparental subset. Um, and so why should we remember that term for later? Um, right. So a biparental subset in this case is a set of lines um, resulting from the same cross. They have the same parents and genetic background. Um, so I mentioned how the genetic background can kind of create this confounding effect in our analysis. Um, use, considering just lines from one cross, um, I've removed this confounding effect. And so then the lines from the same cross, they could potentially, some of them could have, you know, a blue allurone and others could not? Um, right. So if one of the parents has blue allurone and one of the parents has a white allurone and you cross them, some of the progeny are blue, some of the progeny are white. Got it. Yeah. That, oh, wow. That makes so much more. That makes total sense. Once you once you say it, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. Right. Uh, it's brown eyes, blue eyes, hazel and all that other stuff. Right. That we're used to seeing um, with, with humans. Uh, OK, so then um, who wants to to to. Um, uh, well, uh, let me, let me uh, sort of do this then. Uh, I'll introduce the study real quick. And again, you're trying to assess this bias against blue allurone barley and then i'm going to read the three objectives from the study and then i'll let um you know either of you guys talk about it so three objectives were assessing malting suitability by blue out bly allurone color in fall planted barley investigating relationships between allurone color and malting phenotypes and using gwas to identify qtl relevant allurone color and malting characteristics all right who wants to sort of jump into this give us like the bird's eye view of the study then we'll take a break and look at the results uh, yeah. right, oh go ahead oh, go, no i don't want to go ahead i was just going to grab the first one there and then punt to you and that would be fall planted barley so 
Uh, this we've been that's something we've been working on now for years because of climate change traits. Like you said, we talked about this back in the context of thunder and lightning. And so in our breeding program, we produce these double haploid lines. They go out to the field. There's a large group of these things. And typically we use GWAS to study disease resistance in these panels. It's just a very useful way of getting at it. And then in this particular panel, we saw, oh my gosh, it's actually segregating for aluron color. So let's jump on that phenotype as well as the disease resistance and let's enlist Harmony Bettenhausen to help us out with the malting quality analysis. Huh, interesting. Okay. And then uh, Chris, the, the other two pieces. Uh, yeah, so we had this set of 175 lines that were segregating for aluron color. No, I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, and so we did enlist um, the help of Harmony Bettenhausen to uh, uh, collect a lot of malting data uh, with us, and as well as we um, collected a lot of color data. We had a lot of different measurements of um, how we can kind of quantify this blue color. Um and so to investigate the relationships between aluron color and malting phenotypes, we said, well, here are our blue lines, here are our white lines. Are they different for any of these traits? And we determined that across the whole population, yes, but when you consider the biparental subset where the genetic background is the same, uh, the differences were less uh, large. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. And we're going to break in. We're going to get into that. We're going to go into the results uh, um, right after this break, where we'll look at look at the whole population, the whites versus the blues, um, and see if we should be sad about blue barley or not. We all know that designing recipes is really fun, and doing it well is so much easier with good software. We at Brewlosophy recently made the switch to Brewfather, and honestly, y'all, we could not be happier. Brewfather utilizes the latest technology to bring you the most robust cloud-based recipe design software that can be accessed anywhere, on your phone, tablet, desktop, and even offline. It also works seamlessly with numerous third-party devices to make it easier to monitor every step of your brew. I know change can be difficult, but trust me when I say you need to go to brewfather.app today to try it out for yourself. That's brewfather.app. Established in 1995, More Beer has been consistently serving the greater brewing community since the times IPA was expected to be bitter and clear. And there are reasons they've stuck around so long. In addition to their massive product selection and excellent customer service, More Beer has locations on both the West and the East Coast of the United States, which translates into fast shipping times regardless of where you live. And when you spend more than $59, shipping is free. When you're in need of brewing ingredients and gear, there's no better option than morebeer.com, one of the most trusted shops on the planet. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.
Around St. Patrick's Day in the United States, green beer is everywhere, and I guess glitter beer is becoming a thing, which means you can turn beer any color you want. And I've heard of green malt. I even had Selena Selena DeGolan on the show to talk about using green malt in the brewery. But before today's episode, I'd never heard of blue alurone barley. Um, So we discussed before the break that blue alurone barley isn't going to turn your beer blue. Um, So I guess at least there's nothing. We don't have to worry about that right you know right so if your beer is blue it's not because of the barley it's not because of the barley (laughs) exactly uh you know but it does seem like there's some question right and and i don't want to discount uh you know what maltsters and and uh, uh brewers are seeing out there um if they're seeing uh differences in quality based on the whether the barley looks blue or doesn't blue that's certainly something that needs to be studied and investigated and so i'm glad that uh chris and pat did this study um so why don't you start us off at the very top how did you find the barley varieties to study yeah as i was saying a little bit earlier we we uh, routinely produce uh you know just heaps of new double haploids every year, thanks to Tanya and Laura. Then we take those out in the field and Scott gets those out into assessment. And uh, and then uh, thankfully we've got the resources to put the molecular markers on these that uh, like uh, Chris had mentioned. And so typically we've been using these uh, cycles, we call them, to look for disease resistance genes and specifically resistance to diseases that are prevalent uh, here in Oregon, like striped rust or scald, or uh, a disease we're really concerned about as kind of a global threat to barley, and that's stem rust. So this one happened to be cycle five in in an order of such things, like we've got a cycle six now that's out in the field, and we're looking at uh, the resistance to barley yellow dwarf virus uh, in that population. Cycles four, three, two, one, they were all about stripe rust and stem rust. And so, you know, we we have this, uh, we're getting this seed together, uh, to put out in the field. And it was like, whoa, there's white alurone and there's blue alurone. And important to point out, it's not binary. If this thing were binary, we wouldn't have used GWAS. It would have been just like shooting fish in a barrel. Instead, there was this just horrible gradation between blues and whites, which was a surprise to us. I mean, we look at this thing and go, oh my gosh, you know, how on earth do we call a blue a blue? And how do we call a white a white? And how do we get everything in between? And that's where we uh, enlisted Mariona to really help us with the phenotyping and the chemistry associated uh, with the blue algae. Oh, man. Yeah, that uh, we were talking just before the show about my history as a lawyer. And that was one thing that I always tell people is, is there's no such thing as black and white. Um, there's always gray and everything is gray. So that resonates with me uh, that there was some difficulty there in trying to figure out exactly what is white and what is blue. Uh, but so to make sure I understand. So cycle five, this is a cycle of barleys that you guys produced uh, to deal with. Uh, was it stem rust? Is that what you said the disease was that was primarily focusing on? Yeah, stem rust and stripe rust. Are and stripe classic. rust. Yeah. Yep. Um, so did you know when you planted these varieties that you were going to end up using them for, you know, to color of the alluron layer? Well, I think by the time we, well, when we first planted them out, I'd say the answer is no. It wasn't until we started looking at seed samples. And then we had Mariona here as a postdoc. She was a visiting scientist from Spain. And it was like, oh, my gosh, here we've got somebody who's into grain chemistry and quality who could probably really dive into this alurone color thing. And then, you know, we've every time we come up with a, a potential new variety, you, you get these questions sometimes from uh, our industry partners about, 
well, what about blue? And so, uh, you know, this one was kind of precipitated with a conversation with a colleague who said, you know, we're kind of worried about all these blue barleys, Pat, you're coming up with in the Oregon <laughs> program. And, uh, you know, it's just like, well, why are you worried? Because two varieties that you've approved are blue. So Whitmalt is blue. Thunder is blue. So let's not get panicked about blue. And then it was like, oh, but, you know, this blue could be a problem. And then I said, well, lightning is white and it's not recommended as a malting variety. So, you know, it would seem like there were some pieces of evidence there that we might be able to put together. But you can't do statistics just on a sample of three varieties. And so that's where working with Chris, we said, let's do a GWAS. Let's find the genome coordinates for what's driving blue, white, and then all of the nuanced variation that we're seeing in between those two uh, poles. Yeah, you know, and it, it is really interesting, right, to think about all of the different varieties. I mean, you just mentioned Thunder. Thunder is is a blue uh, barley variety, and Thunder is one of the most highly planted uh, barley malts or barley varieties in the United States. Um, and and as we discussed on episode thirty six, Lightning didn't get approved because of, if I remember correctly, I think it had um, water sensitivity issues. If I was correct, yeah, and. Yeah, water sensitivity and lightning. And just to correct you on thunder, in our dreams, it would be the most widely planted malting <laughs> <laughs> barley in the United States. I think that we could probably say safely, it is probably the most widely planted uh, uh, winter malting barley in uh, areas of the Pacific Northwest. That might be okay. a little safe. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair enough. Uh, the, so uh, winter varieties. And, and that is, again, a super important. And I always want to make a plug for this. Uh, the, the winter uh, barley varieties like Wint Malt, uh, exactly, are, um, as an example. You know, um, as we you know, move further into climate change and there's water issues and water um, difficulties that we struggle with in the Pacific Northwest and around the country, those winter barley varieties have a huge potential um, to, to help with those challenges. And I know that's been a focus uh, of your research with Thunder and even Lantra, uh, the newest um, winter variety. You want to do a little quick plug for Lantra? Sure. Uh, Lantra is the new world otter. And so, <laughs> you know, where does a person come up with a name like that? That happens to be the genus of the new world otter. And uh, one of Lantra's parents is Maris otter, which is the old world otter. And that is the genus Lutra. So we were just getting way into the weeds with otter taxonomy <laughs> and so forth. But it's just kind of a good natured little, you know, a little poke to our friends in England to say, hey, you guys have this really renowned heirloom variety, Maris otter. Hey, we used it as a parent in our program and, uh, and then we created our own uh, version of it. And uh, so Admiral Malting uh, down in the Bay Area has been just instrumental in, in, in pushing the law variety forward. And uh, coming up at the MBAA uh, uh, regional meeting uh, later this week, we'll have actually a, uh, a sensory assessment of Thunder and Lantra beers uh, brewed by Deschutes uh, that uh, using malts that were pneumatically malted here uh, by Scott Fisk uh, in our OSU malt house and by Curtis Davenport uh, using their pilot system. Uh, down at uh, Admiral Malting. So if you're headed to Hood River or if you're not headed to Hood River yet, get registered and get out there and, and taste these beers. And Lantra happens to be, happens to be bluish. It's it, ish. Nice. So yeah. It's, 
it, it's not quite as blue, maybe, as a robin's egg blue or like in the ham sky blue waters commercials, you know, where there was really blue water. It's kind of more the blue of the Willamette River here in Corvallis on a partly sunny day. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. If you've seen the Willamette River, I'm sure you've got a clear picture of the blue there uh, on a partly sunny day because it's never fully sunny. But <laughs> um, but uh, 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 Ed, you said Lantra is getting off in the weeds. I think that's just another fantastic fantastic example of a great name. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're, we've digressed and we need to bring it back to uh, Aluron Color. Um, so I wanted to ask, how do you measure Aluron Color, especially if there are these gradation issues? Right. So that's where we enlisted Mariona and said, Mariona, please dive in the literature. Help us out here. Uh, what what do we do? And so, well, you know, is it that there's a, a long historical uh, record going back and you can just kind of look at it and say, even with a hull on and say, you know, can we see something? And it's it's difficult uh, to do that. If you if you scrape the the hull off, then you can usually see the aluron color a little better. And then if you moisten that uh, scrape grain, then you can usually see it even a little bit better. But but the eye can can uh, often fool us, uh, as we know. And so uh, to kind of ratchet things up a little bit, we said, let's use a colorimeter here so we can quantify uh, the color that we're seeing. And so Mariana uh, went down that road. And then as you go uh, you know deeper into that, then you can look at the colorimeter values for untreated uh, grain. And then you can also treat the grain with acid which is reported in the literature to just make it a little easier to visually discriminate uh, between uh, blues, whites, and everything in between. But as it turned out in our case, it wasn't particularly binary. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that if that people go down the acid road, uh, that uh, if you're really just uh, concerned about blue, just pearl the barley. That's a very gentle abrasion process, which removes the uh, the uh, the hull and then you can see the aluminum. Yeah, yeah. So pearling the barley, if you're interested in looking to see if your own barley um, is blue or white or anywhere in between, pearling the barley might be the way to look at that. All right. Well, then, other than color, uh, what other measurements did you take? So Pat mentioned those 57 traits that are important for malting quality in barley. Um, we took as many of them as was feasible. Um, <laughs> oh, hell. <laughs> everything from grain protein, grain moisture, water sensitivity, friability, fine extract, wort color, just to name a few. Um, just about anything that we um, thought would be relevant to malting trials. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that makes sense, right? And and I, I think, I, I, did I hear you mention the anthocyanin content too? Did you mention that one as well that you actually... actually uh, no, that is also on the list. So... I mentioned that the blue color is is a result of anthocyanin accumulation. So we wanted to see the correlation between grain anthocyanin and uh, the blue color. I see. Yeah. So we've got a couple of different ways to measure like the, the color, the anthocyanin content, the different vision, the visual assessment, a colorimeter, uh, you know, all of these different different resources. And then using um, Harmony Bedenhausen at Hartwig College um, and her team to assess these malt quality parameters. And uh, again, if you want to look at all of the parameters that they looked at, they've got all of that information in the article. Um, there's some very nice supplementary tables that describe all of that and show all of the malting quality uh, parameters that they looked at. 
Um, but they looked at all the big ones, just like you said, Chris, protein, moisture, water sensitivity, extract, color, beta-glucan, fan, uh, S over T, diastatic, all these things that you would see on a certificate analysis uh, and compared it to alurone color. So let's get into sort of then, um, then the results. Um, and a challenge that you guys have uh, been describing uh, throughout the show is understanding exactly what is white and what is blue. Um, so I think we should start there because there's some interesting findings that you guys found in terms of characterizing um, alurone color. Who wants to take this one? Chris, take it away. Yeah, definitely. Um, the thing that stuck out to me the most was the difference in color between 2021 and 2022. Um, 2021 was a very hot and dry year. Um, and what we found was things were much bluer. Um, there's this clear um, difference in the distribution of blues versus whites. You can very easily pick out um, just based on colorimeter values. These are the blues and these are the whites. Uh, in 2022, uh, we don't really see that. Everything's much whiter. Um, and so I attributed that to the difference in temperature, uh, and we didn't directly measure uh, sunlight, but I can assume that we had some heat stress going on. There's some light stress. Um, and we were really very fortunate that our malt data is from 2021, where we had this very clear dis- differences in color. Um, I don't want to say science is part luck, but... You certainly were very fortunate there. You try to put yourself in the path of opportunity. Right. <laughs> there you that's, go. That's a very, that's a much better way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the path of opportunity and also having some great data to be able to, to analyze. I love it whenever you're able to look at the data and it's like, oh, this looks great. Um, right. you know, um, of course you want every study to be like that, but science is real. Um, and sometimes it's not. Um, that's great. So that's really interesting. Um, that takeaway then. And one thing that's sticking with me is what we talked about, um, you know, the alurone layers purpose, at least in turning blue, um, is that heat resistance. So in a year where there's high uh, dryness and heat, uh, you see some definite segregating, right? Some barleys that put a lot more blue um, in their alurone layer, and it, and maybe that helps with some of that heat and stress resistance. So that's really interesting um, to think about. And then, okay, so n- now sort of the meat of the study, maybe not the meat, but, you know, the really important aspect of it is um, comparing that alurone color to uh, malting traits. And it's unfortunate that we can't share on a podcast all of the great figures that you guys have in the paper because the figures are fantastic. Uh, but we'll try to do the best justice that we can um, uh, here on the podcast. Um, and I, I generally don't like to just add ask general questions like this, but I think I'm going to do it. So what did you guys find in terms of alurone color and malting quality traits? Uh, yes. Yeah. So what we found uh, was that when we considered the entire uh, population, all 175 lines, uh, alurone color, uh, as measured by a colorimeter, was highly correlated with a lot of the um, malting characters that we were measuring. Uh, so there was, did on the surface appear to be some effect there. Uh, however, uh, when we looked at this biparental subset, this smaller section of the smaller selection of lines that uh, uh, had the same genetic background, uh, for the most part, those relationships weren't there. So this biparental subset was segregating. Some of them were blue, some of them were white. And for the most part, um, whether or not they were blue or white was a bad predictor of their uh, malt performance. 
I see. So when we're looking at the whole population, all 175 lines, they all have different, you know, parentage, right? They have different lineage and different DNA. Um, and so I guess then a question that I would have for y'all is, is it, would it, is it fair to say then that some of the parentage groups, you know, trended more towards blue, some trended more towards white, some trended in the middle and some were just total mixes? Is that kind of a fair way to like look at that general population data? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That, so that starts to make sense. Then we might see a trend looking at the global population data because, you know, some more of the, uh, you know, uh, strains that were in there trended towards blue um, in that. But when you take away the differences in um, the or ooh, let's use some statistical terms to take away the variability associated with their parentage or their lineage. Right. Then you strip away um, that variability, that variation, and you no longer see um, a difference based on a difference in malting quality characteristics based on uh, the color of the Aluron layer. Correct. Yes. I would just follow up on that real quickly, hearkening back to the question, how did you choose this particular set of lines to be uh, the, the focus of the study? And, and like, like I said, you know, the, the, the goal was disease resistance. So it was a random sample of what was coming through our breeding program at that point. If a person were wanting to actually critically assess the, the role of aluron color, you probably would have structured your population differently. You would have had a very large array of crosses, you would have had a different parentage, and you would have had a greater balance of blues, in-betweens, and whites. As it was, for example, we had one cross that was just all blue because we crossed blue by blue and we got blue. Mm -hmm. uh, that makes a lot of sense, right? If, when you're looking at like humans and population, you're looking at green eyes, blue eyes, you know, uh, brown eyes, right? You need to do a larger study with a huge number of populations that have balanced data. That makes a lot of sense. If you're just looking at blue eyed people or, or, or there's way more blue eyed people in the study, you're going to not be able to take away as much from that as you would if you were looking at a, a, a much a bigger study. But it is interesting to see though, too. So when you look at just, I'm just going to continue with that metaphor, look at just blue blue-eyed people, just look at blue alurone barley, you didn't see uh, any differences, or I'm sorry, when you looked at just blue-eyed people and just brown-eyed people, right, you didn't see any differences between them in terms of malting characteristics when you took away um, the variation from their uh, their, their their heritage, their, uh, their genes. Um, right, so uh, one of the tables gives a, a specific breakdown of, of where we did find differences and where we didn't find differences. Um, once we removed that genetic background um, noise, that effect, um, we did see that fine extract was slightly higher in the blues um, in our biparental subset, um, but that could just be an impact of how it was sampled. Um, I don't necessarily want to make the argument that blues are the way to go from now on always. Um, <laughs> you're going to get more extract out of blues. Yeah. Well, let's be, we, right. we should be careful about, uh, about saying that one. Yeah. No, but that's interesting too. So, so I guess we should like run down really quickly. Some of the malting characteristics that are malting quality characteristics that were significant at the population level, but not in the biparental subset. Um, and that's things like fan and diastatic power and S over T water sensitivity, work color, alpha amylase, um, beta gluconase, and to some extent, all the 
although lesser extent, uh, friability. Um, you know, and then some things that that uh, that had a also uh, oh yeah, I mean also had a low a total protein and fine extract too. Um, left those almost left those off the bottom. Um, so there were a lot of things that you're looking at going oh if you were just looking at the population data that you guys looked at in this subset you'd be kind of thinking like wow maybe there is something um, to this whole white versus blue uh, you know aluron layer. But again, taking out that population. Uh, variability means that looking just at the biparental subset, none of those things except maybe fine extract and diastatic power were significant. I would right. just follow up on that too with the statistical truism that correlation is not causation. And so the fact that we saw phenotypic correlations between malting quality traits and the color of the aluron, yeah, I mean, that those are relationships that occurred in this particular subsample of germplasm. You could not necessarily apply those to the global population of barley. And that was why then the GWAS was such a powerful tool to kind of turn these data on their head a little bit, if you will, and, and ask the question, well, what is driving that correlation? Is it just the breeding history of these lines or is it a cause and effect relationship between aluron color and and what a fantastic segue to the Grelas g one Grelas GWAS results so um uh, chris why don't you take us through the results of the GWAS uh yeah so i mentioned uh, earlier that the genetic control of uh, blue aluron was on the 4h and 7h chromosomes in barley um we detected mostly that um 4-H was the kind of driving factor for what differentiated the blues versus the whites. Um, and so we got a, on our Manhattan plot, we got a nice, wonderful peak there, right where the BLX locus um, should be uh, the ballpark of. Um, and no malting characters uh, were identified to have a genetic control uh, on that chromosomal arm. Um, what we did notice for malting characters, they were primarily controlled on uh, the long arm of 5H, which is very likely MKK3 or SD2, um, which has been referenced before with regards to malting quality. Okay, so I mean, so that's a, a sort of a big takeaway there, right? That the the five or four H chromosome, um, which seemed to control for the color of the aluron layer, there were no uh, major malt quality QTLs that were also on that chromosome. That stuff is on a different chromosome five H. So does that then suggest that those two things are unrelated? Like Pat was just mentioning, correlations not ca- not causation, but is this more of a causation argument that those two things potentially aren't related? Uh, it, it is evidence to suggest that um, with GWAS, you get into the, the tricky um, differentiation between linkages. You can't differentiate between linkage, pleiotropy, um, anything like that. Um, but fortunately, because we identified no malting um, QTL there, then we didn't really have to worry about that. Um, <laughs> okay. And so and so it, it would certainly be, be evidence to kind of support our point that the blues are all right. Yeah, the blue the blues are all right. Now there was other one other caveat too. I see here in the in the things that, that there was one minor color QTL that was next to work color and water sensitivity. Um, but you guys noted in here that it explained very little of the observed variance in any of the respective traits, um, and it wasn't stable across seasons. So again. Um, you know, just sort of that's a one caveat to the data uh, because we want to be sure that we report all of the data and everything like that. But it's, again, nothing to take away 
from or nothing to suggest that um, blue alurone uh, color or the genes that code for those things cause losses or differences um, in malt quality. Right. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I, no, uh, that's, yeah, no that problem. Was yeah. Interesting to see that, that, and it's, you know, a lesson in these types of GWAS analyses. Um, you can have not stable hits that you know, aren't present from year to year, even in the same germplasm. Um, and I never figured out what that one was. I, it, it's, it's a little bit of a, a mystery still to me today, but it, like you mentioned, it did not explain hardly any of the variance variation that we saw in the population. Um, and it was not stable. Um, so I wasn't too concerned about it. Yeah, well, and of course, looking at all of these, all of this information sort of uh, together, you guys write in the papers, based on these results, it can be concluded that the presence of blue alurone has little bearing on whether or not a barley line is suitable for malting. Instead, these decisions should be made based on thorough malt analysis, or in other words, as you say, the blues are all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so again, I am big takeaway from this is is that that hey, don't worry about it. Uh, you know, don't worry, be happy. Uh, go ahead and malt or go ahead and use those blue varieties for malting. Um, and uh, so I wanted to ask this question uh, too. I'll ask both of you this question. Uh, if you want brewers to take away just one thing from today's episode, what would it be? And Chris, I'll start with you. Yeah, and I think my answer is exactly what you just said. Determine what the best malting barley lines are based on thorough malt analysis. So make data-driven decisions. Yeah, I like that. Pat, how about you? If you want brewers to take away just one thing from today's episode, what would it be? Oh, gosh, we're all uh, thinking along the same lines here. Uh, make it data-driven. Don't just get your biases out of the picture. Yeah, get your biases out of the picture. Just because it's blue doesn't mean it's bad, right? I, I, I think that's a, a great way of saying that. Uh, and I know, uh, Pat, there were a number of partners that you guys worked with uh, on this. Uh, we've mentioned several of them throughout the show, like Harmony and Mariana. Um, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to just say thank you to all of the people who were also co-authors um, and, and, in, and involved in the project. Oh, thanks much for that opportunity, Kate, because, you know, the it takes a band to play the blues. You know, you don't just have like <laughs> yes, one person out there. So, you know, we had Mariona, we had Harmony, we had Tanya, uh, Scott and Laura. And so all those co-authors just had key functions uh, in this band. And then, you know, the, the dude who headed the whole thing up was the hoodoo man. That's uh, Chris Massman right here. And so if you're not familiar with that album, look it up. Hoodoo Man Blues. It's uh, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells. Just an absolute classic of the blues. Enjoy it with your next beer. Yes, absolutely. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Well, Chris and Pat, thank you so much for joining me uh, in the Brew Lab. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about uh, about the Malting Barley Blues? I think we covered everything. All right. Well, it sounds good. Again, thank you so much, Chris. I uh, hope you enjoyed the first time in the Brew Lab. That's very much so. Thank you for having me on. All right, of course. And Pat, of course, welcome back um, and uh, hope to have you both on future episodes. Yep. Thanks so much, Kate. Always a pleasure to be here. Cheers. All right. Well, a link to this article is going to be included in the show notes. As always, the article is titled The Malting Barley Blues. It was published in 2023 in the Journal of the American Society of Brewing Chemists. Next week, Jordan and I will be back applying the science to the malting barley blues, and we'll see you then. The Brew Lab is a production of Brewlosophy, where they who drink beer think beer. Don't forget to visit Brewlosophy.com to read about our weekly experiments and other brewing adventures and listen to us talk about it on our other show, The Brewlosophy Podcast. 
Thanks to all of our sponsors and patrons that help make this show possible. If you'd like to receive a reward for helping us do what we do, visit patreon.com slash brewlosophy to see how you can do just that. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in the Brew Lab with another guest next week. Until then, think beer. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 